trying to live in abundance. I gotta keep it a hundred. Hey, if you don't like it, then fuck it. Hey, we gonna win in the end. Yeah, we gonna, we gonna, we gonna. I gotta keep it a hundred. We gotta stop all the stunting. You know we coming from nothing. Yo, you talking about money, you bluffing. We gotta do something different. We gotta change how we live in. We gotta do better for women. We gotta do better for children. We gotta listen to victims, whether Jewish or Muslim or Christian. It doesn't matter your religion. You gotta stand against the system, or else you're just another villain. How you just sitting there chilling? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much um, for listening to another great episode. And it doesn't matter where you are. If it's nighttime, have have a good night. If it's daytime, have a good evening, have a good day, good morning. Um, this is the Javari Bach Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for all the support. Don't forget to like, share, and comment and comment and follow because that is how I am able to get a lot done. And I want to thank the uh, Arts Council of New Haven for also physically sponsoring the uh, coverage of my future music projects. Um, there's a lot of great things that will be going on starting off on this 2024 season. We are almost there. Wow. I can't believe it. So we're going to get back into the conversational pieces of this VOC podcast, which is the culture and the politics of it. Um, a lot of people have asked me a lot of questions about Palestine and definitely check out the interview that I had with my good friend, Yaffa, who is a Palestinian that used to run the nonprofit Life in My Days, which I was also a um director uh, a program director a part of so i'm very very happy that i was able to talk to yafa because you know they travel all over the world and definitely check that out because i think it's so important but speaking of nonprofit, i just received a uh, i just received another uh great opportunity to talk to a gentleman by the name of herbie k who is the founder of the 1964 plan I looked through the website. It's very, very interesting. And I think that this is going to be a very, very good conversation that we're going to have. And I want people to definitely get engaged and get ready because I definitely have some questions and there's a lot I agree with. And there's also a lot I disagree with, which is also great. So I think it's so important to have these talks. And I'm very, very fortunate that he took the time out to come on my show. Without further ado, Herbie K. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I am so happy to be here, Jamar. Thank, thank you so much for, for taking the time out. Um, and I just learned something new from you. Uh, just want to share with the audience about how daylight savings work in Arizona, <laughs> which is totally different from here in Connecticut, where daylight savings actually changes overnight. And we just don't even notice. We don't even we just wake up we're like, oh, OK, it's daylight. <laughs> but you, you know, guys don't even do it <laughs> well we notice you know we wake up and it's daylight we just don't think the time changed arizona is just goes its own way we always have you know it's like it's like in politics we're a purple state sometimes we're democratic mm. sometimes we're republican that's just how our state is we go our own way and so right. our clocks our clocks follow it you know what i mean mm. so there you go and i also like about when you mentioned you know how you're a purple state you also on your 
nonprofit, which is why I love about nonprofits that do this, because there are a lot of nonprofits that say that they are not leaning to any political views or any supporting any politicians, but they actually do. Um, I've done a lot of coverage on critiquing uh, nonprofits here in the, in the United States, especially those that go off of seeking um, funding solely from the government. And once you get into that, it's it's a totally different ball game. So I love how neutral that you guys are instead of, you know, trying to choose which part, because I'm one that says, well, both parties are trash anyway. Um, so why do we need to <laughs> act like one well, side is better than the other? <laughs> I call them the uniparty. They're the same. You know, it, it's. They they talk like they're different, but when push comes to shove, they're the same. So yeah. yeah, we don't take any side. Plus, we're the kind of nonprofit that's educational. So when people donate to us, they can deduct the the money that they give us. But if we were political, they wouldn't be able to. We don't endorse parties. I don't care who you vote for. Whatever makes you happy, man. You know, yeah. like whatever. It isn't. Believe me when I tell you, if we don't do some serious fixing ourselves, what the politicians do isn't going to make any difference anyway. Mm. So. Mm. Let's get down to business. I'm ready when you are, my friend. Yes, yes. So let's talk about, I know that you have talked about this multiple times. So let's just start from the beginning of 1964 plan. How did this come into um, um, being? How did this nonprofit begin in being? Began in prison, believe it or not. So I have a very unusual background in that I've been very, very rich and I've been very, very poor, which is unusual. I, I uh, in 2008, so to make a long, I'm going to make a very long story. <laughs> very, I have a very long resume and you guys can check it out through the 1964plan.org. But here we go. I was an entrepreneur. I started and, and ran and sold a lot of businesses between 1981 and 2008. And I was, you know, on top of the world and I was rich and all those things that you can imagine. But then mm. came the real estate crash in 2008. And at the time, I was a real estate developer. And not only was I a real estate developer, but I was a real estate developer in Mexico, which made it twice as complicated. Mm. So when the market crashed in 2008, what I should have done is let my company crash with it. But I didn't. I tried to save it. And when I tried to save it, I broke the law and there's just no other way to say it. I crossed the line trying to raise extra money to keep the company alive. And I ended up going to prison. Mm. When I went to, and, and by the way, I deserved it. I don't get into the whole song and dance of, you know, my reasons and how I did it and whether I did it on purpose or not. Look, it doesn't matter. It Why really do you think matter. you deserved it? Don't mind me by asking. Because what was I your had reason a long relationship. I had a long relationship with the people that I raised money from, sometimes going back as much as 20 and 30 years, and I betrayed their trust. So regardless of whether I meant to do it or I didn't mean to do it, I hurt a yeah. lot of innocent people financially. And that finance, you know, a lot of these people couldn't afford to be hurt the way I hurt them. Mm. And so there isn't a day that goes by. There isn't a minute of any hour of any day that I just don't just feel awful about it. But, you know, mm. my my choice, it was my fault. I I, I don't know any other way to put it. I, I, I'm i not going to be one of those guys to try to weasel out of out of their responsibility. I, I did. If people want to judge me by the worst thing I've ever done at the worst possible time in my life, then that's fine. It, it, judge me that way. But prison, believe it or not, was life changing for me in a good way. I learned I was exposed to people that I would have never, ever met. And it gave me a very unique perspective, different from other basically rich white Jewish guys, which is what I was. 
Mm. Now, when I went to prison as a rich white Jewish guy, the first thing I found out was is that prison is segregated. And now I'm answering your your uh, question, by the way. I'm going right there, Jamar. Prison yeah. is segregated by race, and it's and it's it's not segregated by race by the um, the corrections officers or the administration. It's separated by the inmates. The the races don't want to mix, so they and all of the different racial groups are led by gangs. So, you know, in, in the whites, it was the Aryan brothers and the uh, skinheads. Well, right. Aryan brothers and skinheads are Nazis and they hate Jews. So naturally, I didn't want to roll with them. So I ended up rolling black. And mm. I ended up rolling, which by the way, in prison is called kinfolk. So okay. I ended up rolling. Yeah, I rolled kinfolk because- Interesting. <laughs> I, could, I thought- I felt closer to the black guys than the white guys because the black guys didn't have any problem with me being Jewish and the white guys were a bunch of Nazis. So to make a look and not not all of them. And God knows I, I knew plenty of nice guys, too. I'm speaking in the you know, I was going to spend over four years in prison, which I did. I, I wasn't going to do it looking behind my back all the time who was going to attack me. So I got close with the black guys. And by the way, they protected me. And, um, you know, as an older guy in prison, that was an important thing. And I appreciated that. <laughs> I don't know mm. any other way to say it. I mean, it, it's but it, it opened my eyes to how the world really is. So the 1964 plan came to me in prison while I was in prison. I decided not to waste my time. In other words, I didn't just want to sit there and, and, and be a vegetable on, on, on my rack in my in my prison house and, you know, just sit there and wait for my time to be up. So I spent a lot of time reading and writing and thinking because I also want to earn redemption. And Jewish people are different than Christians. Christians believe that, you know, you can get redemption in Christ. By the way, I'm not religious. I'm just explaining where I came from on this. Gotcha. But Jewish people believe in redemption through acts. In other words, you have to do something. So I decided that if I could leave the, my world and my country a little better than I found it, because obviously I'm not getting any younger, then... I would do that. And that's where the 1964 plan came from, is, is how could I, I learned so much about how all of these young men of all of these races, whether it be white or black or Chicano or Paisa, Paisa are the, are the Latino people who are not American citizens. And they separate the two groups in prison because the, the Chicanos and the Paisas hate each other. Mm. Why? It's a long story. You know, yeah. it's how they, it comes down to the Chicanos don't speak Spanish all the time, and the Pisces speak Spanish all the time, and the two groups resent each other. And I, you know, I know how silly that sounds, but that's how it is. And, oh, and then there's Native. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. That's. It. I mean, exactly. So I, you know, what can I say? Yeah, I, I'm not. You can't <laughs> but I was friendly with both groups because I speak fluent Spanish. And in fact, I grew up. Uh, I was born in Miami Beach, and my mother divorced my natural father when I was too young to remember. And we had, my mother worked as a bilingual teller at a bank in Miami Beach, and she had a degree in Spanish with a minor in French, and I inherited that ability with foreign language. And I just learned to speak Spanish from our Cuban housekeeper who, <laughs> she didn't speak English. So she spoke to me in Spanish as a baby, my mother. So long story short, I get along great with Latinos too. The, I rode black because I'm more comfortable with black people in general. Mm -hmm. um, from my life experience, because I grew up in Miami, then later in Pittsburgh. So I've been around a lot more black people than Latinos early in my life. But okay. I love everybody, you know, it's, I get along great. And the Native American guys who call themselves chiefs in prison, they're very quiet. I, I didn't talk to a lot of them in prison. They very much kept to themselves. Very nice, very pleasant, very polite, but very much to themselves. And anyway, so the 1964 plan, the, the name of it, 
comes from the year that the Civil Rights Act was passed. So the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, which to me is the most important piece of legislation since the 13th Amendment ended slavery in 1865, because it, it made all discrimination illegal in the United States. Now, that's not racism and discrimination are two different things, right? And homophobia and discrimination are two different things. Racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, all of those things are thought crimes. You know, people think these things and you really can't get into their head to rip, to rip it out. And, you know, to me, only time heals that. But right. discrimination, which is the overt act of discriminating against somebody because of their race or their religion or their gender or whatever it might be or their sexual preference, that's illegal. And it has been illegal since 1964. Obviously, we have battles yet to fight, but at least the law is on our side. We will win. I say we being the decent people who don't, I'm not going to say something stupid like I don't see race. Of course I see race. I'm not blind, <laughs> but I, you know, but, but I ignore it. You know, I mean, there's a, people who say I don't see color are lying. Of course you see color. I see color. I can see your black Jamar. I don't I'm care. laughing because I agree with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, people say that that's such a bullshit thing. You know, right. I have spoken in front of black churches, for example, and been the only white uh, voice in the room standing up there in the pulpit, but I don't pretend I'm looking at a bunch of gray people, you know, <laughs> I mean, come on. But we in America have really screwed ourselves up. I mean, really screwed ourselves up. And the 1964 plan solves that. Well, let me rephrase that. It doesn't, nothing, there is no such thing as a solution. There are only trade-offs. Thomas Sowell, who is my favorite living economist, if you aren't familiar with him, just look it up. It's S-O-W-E-L-L. -L. Thomas Sowell says, he's at Stanford, by the way, and he's now 93 years old and he's getting ready. You know, he's obviously not for much longer going to be the greatest living economist, but right now he's the greatest living economist. And he's my hero in many, many ways. And he says, there's no such thing as a solution. There are only trade-offs. And I agree with that. And so the 1964 plan, as much as something can be solved, solves all the societal problems that are tearing us apart. Now, it doesn't deal with politics and it doesn't deal with foreign policy and it doesn't deal with all that. Like, for example, it has nothing to say on the Israel Hamas situation. We don't deal with foreign policy, but it, we deal with here, home and what's tearing us apart and how do right. we fix it and how do we try to make our country what it was meant to be, not what it's turned out to be. So anyway, go ahead. Fire away. So very, very, very domestic. No, no, Mary, no. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, as a Jew, I have an opinion about what's going on in Israel and Hamas, but I'm not going to share it. It's, it's not oh, yeah. It's not relevant to this discussion. And again, we're not political. Believe, yeah. God bless you all. You know, right, left, center, do whatever you want. Let's talk about our society, our culture, and how to put things back regardless of your politics. I and appreciate, that's where we are I appreciate the very, like, focusing very domestically, because I think that we lose focus on that. And I think that's that's not that's by design that's not like it's on purpose they want you to be distracted with all of this so you don't well, really focus on this. that's an old trick that goes back to the romans you know bread and circuses for the masses remember i don't know if you ever heard that saying but i think it was the emperor you know who it was i think it was actually commodus the guy that was in the movie gladiator he was a real emperor and to distract the people from the fact that he was robbing them blind he used to run circuses, which not like we're used to circus, but like great big open air shows in the Colosseum with glad, you know, with gladiators and all that kind of good crap. And then he would also give away free bread. So that it became bread and circuses for the masses to distract them. And I think that's what it is. You know, for example, we're all arguing about Israel right now, but really none of us are going to be affected by what goes on in Israel. It's kind mm -hmm. not that it isn't important, but 
you know, we have plenty of problems right here in the good old U.S. of A. to deal with. And so that's what I'm going to talk about. Yeah, no problem. Let's start. Since we already on the topic, kind of because it's the origin of the story of how you are um, part of how you started this nonprofit, I think it would be good to segue into the idea for prison reform and white papers. Okay, um, good. Yeah. So my question first um, is, you know, I think I don't think that the that the country pays attention enough to people who have been pre previously incarcerated, because I feel like a lot of the answers that we can get for prison reform can uh, come from previous incarcerated people. Um, there's a documentary that's coming out really soon about the Alabama um, prison system that I've been waiting on for a while now. And I've, I've been hearing that it's getting very, very, um, the, the politicians are pissed off, all this nonsense. And as they should be, because if you're complicit, you're complicit. So I have no feelings for how you feel about that in the matter for politicians. But I mean, this is definitely going to be a huge wave once this uh, documentary gets the nor notoriety that it deserves. Um, so my first question is, um, what what is the vision for the 1964 plan for prison reform? <clears throat> I'm glad you asked it. First, I want to start with, I, and I'm not changing the subject, but I want to start with, we got to legalize all drugs. Now, and this directly relates to prison reform, because right. when I was in prison, I would say without, I'm not exaggerating when I say that almost everybody in prison was an addict or a drunk or both. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that there's a difference. I mean, whether to me, alcohol and heroin are both just drugs. And frankly, if I were an addict, I'd pick heroin because alcohol is unbelievably destructive. Where, believe it or not, heroin is less, less destructive than alcohol, but go figure. Not that I'm saying anybody should do either one. You know what I'm saying? But <laughs> yeah, I got you. you. Know, I mean, <laughs> have you, I mean, you, I don't know about you, but I've never met the mean junkie. You know, all they do is sleep. But yeah. but the uh, you know, uh, for example, in domestic violence, alcohol is involved one hundred percent of the time. One hundred percent of the time. So I mean, by the way, that's statistically true. You can fact check me. So anyway, mm. back to prison. So I believe we should legalize all drugs. And when I say legalize, I don't mean decriminalize, which is basically trading a bureaucracy for the drug cartel. So for example, I live in Arizona where uh, weed is legal, both recreationally and medically, but it's not legal legal, it's decriminalized legal, which means that because of all the rules that they put all over it, for no good reason, like for example, I mean, I'm not going to ask you, Jamar, if you smoke weed or not, but I do, and um, no one's ever died of a marijuana overdose. So why do we need a, a gigantic bureaucracy to protect us from ourselves when you can't hurt yourself? You know, the worst thing that happens if you smoke too much weed is you get fat because you eat too much and right. you get lethargic. But yeah, but you're, right. you're not going to kill anybody. Right. So anyway. So I'm I advocate outright legalization, which is just exactly the way it is with alcohol, that anyone can get it anywhere over a certain age, you know, 18, whatever it is. I'm not saying that a 12 year old should be able to get heroin, but I'm saying an 18 year old should be able to get heroin. And the reason I say that is if there's one thing I learned in prison is. There are an enormous amount of people out there for whom living a long time is not their goal. In other words, they have a very bad life for lots of different reasons, and all they're trying to do is escape it day to day. And the, and the escape that they've chosen is drugs. 
And there's nothing new about that. You know, the very first human beings back in Africa, way back when, and when they first developed civilization 10,000 years ago, it was developed to grow hops and barley for beer. I'm serious. We mm. literally formed civilization to begin with to grow the things that make us drunk and high. We also mm. began cultivating mushrooms and wild bushes like the acacia bush in the Middle East, which when you burn it gives you a you hallucinate like you're on mushrooms. Now, I'm saying all this because there's nothing new in, in, in the history of mankind about people taking drugs. But somehow we, dis we decided in our country that we were going to moralize and turn it into a crime instead of an addiction problem. And what we've done by that is we've put a lot of people in prison that shouldn't be there. We have 25% of the world's prison population is in the United States, and we're 4% of the world's overall population. And that 25% falls hardest among the Black and the Latino community. And so it's very, whether it was by intent or accident, it's not important. It The effect is it just beats the living daylights out of the communities of color. And the first step is we have to legalize all drugs. Now, what that would do and I'm going right into prison reform. I promise, Jamar, I'm, I'm going there. I'm just giving you a little bit of background. Okay, because we're going to need You're money fine. to do what I'm saying. And the right. money to pay for everything I'm about to say is going to come from the money we save by not prosecuting the drug war. You know, mm. if, if we legalize drugs, 80% of prison costs would go away. I mean, just overnight. Then we could shut down the DEA, the, the ATF. We could shut down the parts of the FBI that deal with drug um um, interdiction. We could close down all the local police department uh, drug drug uh, cops and all the all the narcs and all that other stuff could all be shut down. And there would be we've spent over a trillion dollars trying to stop addiction unsuccessfully since 1971 when Richard Nixon first declared the drug war. It's time to to just admit that it was lost and then take that money to use it in other places. Now, in prison. 30, according to statistics that I don't make up, but you can fact check me on this. And by the way, in all the white papers, as you already know, Jamar, I footnote. Whenever, whenever I make a claim, there's a footnote in the white papers that you can get on the website, uh, the 1964plan.org. When you click on the learn more button, it'll tell you where I come up with these numbers. I don't just pull them out of the air like so many people do. But 36% of the prison population is there for drug crimes, which is possession or sale. Now, if we... So let's let's start with those 36 percent as part of reform. If we made drugs legal, I would release everybody that was in prison because these are nonviolent crimes. And I would also expunge their records. And the reason I would expunge their records is every prison sentence, every conviction is a life sentence, regardless of how many years it is. So in other words, even though I got a five year sentence of which I served a little over four, I really have a life sentence because for the rest of my life, I'm going to be a felon an ex-felon. And that means that when I apply for a job or I go to do anything or I go to take a trip or whatever it might be, for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to identify myself as a felon. And that's going to close a lot of doors. Now, that's one thing for a guy like me who is, I'd say this without bragging, it just is. I mean, it's just an accident of birth. I'm above average intelligent and I have a background in business. So I'm able to overcome it in some ways. But Think about the millions and millions of young men and women who go to prison who don't necessarily have those tools. They're ruined for life. And so they become hopeless and they start doing prison over and over and over because they fall back into the same place they were because there's no alternative. You know, mm. if you get out and the only job you can get is shoveling shit. Pardon, am I allowed to say a bad word, Jamar? Am I allowed to use bad words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
We're, okay. we're, we're okay. all in unfiltered. <laughs> okay, good. I, I just want to make sure when I say shit or the F-bomb or whatever I lay out, it's okay. When you get out of prison, you're not going to be able to do any job, but metaphorically speaking, shoveling shit the rest of your life, right? right. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that um, people don't have a life sentence for, for nothing. So the first thing I would do is pardon all of those people of every race and every gender and wipe their records clean because they're okay. addicts and they have a health problem, not a criminal problem. Addiction right. is a problem and addiction is not a good thing. And I'm right. not advocating taking drugs. I'm saying why ruin someone's life because they have a health problem. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Now, all the other people in prison, except now when I say all the other people, with the exception of the, the um, cold-blooded murderers, the rapists, the child molesters, that kind of thing, the hardcore horrible pieces of shit that we mm -hmm. need to protect our population from. I'll get to them in a minute. Everybody <laughs> else is in there for a drug-related crime. So right. in other words, a guy might be in there for theft, but he, he, he stole something to pay for his habit. A guy might be in there, and I say a guy because I was in guy prison, but everyone understand, I mean guys and ladies both. It, it just depends on, you know, it's obviously it, it, it's going to end up being the same thing. They just come at it from different angles. And I'll explain that as I get into it too. But you know, most theft and most violence, the reason, for example, you get a lot of gang violence in inner cities is because drugs are illegal. And the business of most of these gangs is drug distribution. So and remember, the drugs are a handshake business. So in other words, there are no contracts in an illegal en enterprise that you can go sue in court for. So if some guy fucks you over on a, on a drug deal, your only option is violence. And that's what I don't think a lot of people, you know, you watch too many movies, you think all these drug lords are out trying to kill everybody in, in sight. That's not true. They're not trying to kill everybody in sight. They're trying to run their business. And I know, just try to look at it as a business, and that's what it is. And they're trying to run their business. And if someone says, I'm going to pay you this much, but they screw you, and there's no, you can't go to court, your only option is to either beat them up or kill them. That's your only that's your only choice. That's why the cartels do it. That's why the gangs do it. So if we legalize drugs, all of this violence would go away overnight. I mean, literally overnight. And how do I know that um, for sure? Because they legalized uh, all drugs in Portugal some years ago, and that's exactly what happened. Um, today, Lisbon, Portugal is the safest major city in the world, and that's because drugs are legal there. So it's not like I'm just making this up as I'm going. So... Um, the first thing I would do is legalize drugs. Now, that would free up an awful lot of money. It would empty out the prisons of all those nonviolent offenders, and it would clean, talk about prison reform, it would clean their records so now they could actually have a second chance without having to tell everybody that they have a criminal record. That's number one. Now, let's talk about reforming. the. Now that I've given you the setup and where the money's going to come from, let me talk about how I'm going to reform the prisons themselves or how I would suggest that we reform prisons themselves. When you go into prison, the first thing that happens is they send you to what's called a segregation yard. Now, that doesn't mean segregated like Jim Crow South. It means by how violent your crime was and how much risk you pose to the rest of the prison population. So the really animals, you know, the ones that are, I, in fact, I hate to use the term animal because I love animals. Let's, let's call them monsters. The monsters <laughs> are segregated right away. They go off the death row or the, or the lifer yard where you're never going to see them. And that's good because when a guy has a life sentence, he has, you know, he can kill you. And what are they going to do to him? Give him another life sentence? So you don't want to put guys around those guys because they're going to get hurt. And there's no reason for that. So that's done right away. Now, here's where I would 
do my biggest set of reforms. When people come into prison, the first thing I would do is you got to segregate away. Most people, let me even back up. Tell me if you agree with this, Jamar. Most people are followers, not leaders. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, good. Well, yeah, it's just human nature. Most of everything is a follower. You know, if you look at a pack of lions, there's the there's the head guy and there's everybody else. I mean, in nature, there's a, there are a few leaders and a lot of followers. Now, in order to that a follower is not a bad person. It's just a yeah. person that doesn't want to seize control. In fact, right. in a lot of ways, they're emotionally healthier. But how do we save them? Because when they go into prison now, they're immediately sucked into their racial gangs. And then when they're young men, they're immediately made into torpedoes, which is, by the way, the guys that carry out the acts of violence in prison. That's the first job a young man gets when he goes into prison is to become a torpedo for whatever his race is. Then he earns his way up the ladder and tries to become, you know, a, a run boss and a yard boss and all that. There's an enormous system of distribution, particularly of drugs in prison. I'll get to that in a minute. OK, so. And by the way, if you can't stop drugs in prison, how in the fuck do you think you're going to stop them on the street? Right. <laughs> it's so stupid. I can't right. believe we even have that. It's just so stupid. OK, anyway. You asked me about prison reform, not drug reform. So let me keep going. So we get, <laughs> we get them in. We bring them to the segregation. I mean, I have a lot to talk about. We don't, we don't want to go on for 10 hours. We get to the prison. They get to the prison yard. Now I want to segregate them by ink. So all gangsters. And all guys that have been to prison have ink. Very few guys. I have prison ink. I'll show it to you. Ready? Here's my prison ink. You like it? Wow. wow. There you go. <laughs> you like that? I got that because I don't hide the fact that I'm a Jew. And, you know, I was an OG, which is, by the way, just to tell you something funny, Jamar, when I first got to prison, everybody was going tell, calling me OG. I thought that meant old guy. I had no idea that meant original gangster. It took me about a month and a half to figure out that that was original gangs. Yeah, I know. Laugh at me. I, I, you know, I was a rich old white Jewish guy. How, what the fuck do I know about OGs? Now I know about OGs. Now I'm I'm proud of it. I like being an OG, but in the sense that I don't know. It's like a I like being an OG. I don't even know why I like being an OG, but I like it anyway. So I was an OG in prison, so I got an, a, an amount of respect. But the first thing that that you notice is everybody has ink, but there's two kinds of ink. There's the kind of ink where you put your girlfriend or your wife's name or your mother's name or your zip code or your neighborhood or whatever. There's a million different kinds of ink, depending on. And all the races have their own kinds of ink. The Native Americans put, you know, wolves and and uh, bears and things on themselves. And the black guys use a lot of black guy, a uh, black matter symbolism and things like that. And the, and the white guys um have their girl everyone has their girlfriend and stuff but the gangsters have things like for example the white guys will have swastikas uh tattooed to them or ss lightning bolts from from the nazis or cwb which is crazy white boy tattooed to the back of their neck or some warrior you know and all the different races have their have their ink that tells you that they're in the gangs and the and that they're gangsters well i think that that's the easiest way to segregate the wolves from the sheep. That is the easiest thing to, to do. So when when I suggest that when everyone goes to prison, everyone is given an option. We can remove your gang ink free of charge. The state will remove your gang ink. We'll bring in you know the best people and we'll remove it. Or if you don't, if you want to keep it, that's your business, but you go to the tough yard. You're going off with the bad guys. Okay. Now I'm telling you that these gangsters of every race will never agree to remove their ink. To them, 
That's their whole life. That's that's their whole identity. Good, because that's the easiest way to get them out of the way. All the other guys, all the sheep, when faced with the choice of being in with a bunch of murderers or being on a yard where they can have a little peace and quiet, are going to say, take off the gang ink. Most of them have gang ink just because they got pressured into it by peer pressure. So that's how I would segregate the shit, the, the shit from the Shinola, as they used to say, the, the kids that have a shot. I met so many young men in prison that if they had been luckier and been born into a different family somewhere other than where they were born, they would have been doctors and lawyers and engineers. There was nothing stupid about them. They were smart young men. They just started life with two strikes against them. Okay, so I really, really, really think it's important. We got to get the the monsters away from the rest of the population so that we have a chance to reform those young men and women and give them a second chance on life, not just throw them out like garbage, okay? Because even after we legalize drugs, even after we do all this, there's still going to be millions of them. So let's try to save these people as much as we can. But we also have to accept there are some people we can't save, and those hardcore gangsters who won't remove that ink Good. Let them go off and be hardcore gangsters and kill each other. They're doing a public service as far as I'm concerned. So everybody else at that point goes to their yard and they go into basic training. Now, basic training, I came up with this because I am a veteran. I'm a Navy veteran. I've been through basic training. And basic training affects you in ways that last your whole life. I, too, was raised without my, my natural father. The thing that is that almost every young man in prison and young woman in prison has in common is that they're raised without fathers. That is the most common thing. Ninety nine percent of people really? in prison. And, oh, no bullshit. They're there. None of the, they might know who I have their to father challenge is. That, but I, I don't know. <laughs> but don't 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 challenge it. You're going to lose everybody <laughs> in prison. I'm not shitting you. Even if they know who their fathers are. Some of them do. Mm -hmm. Their fathers are little more than sperm donors. They're guys that knocked up their baby mama. You know, the term baby mama, which, by the way, cuts across all races. Um, here's what happens. When you don't have a father, and let me back up and explain why this is so important. Fathers teach children a lot of important lessons, but the two most important are boundaries and deferred gratification. That's the most important job. So a mother's generally speaking, can't put down a boundary like a father can. I know that sounds sexist, but fuck that. I'm, I'm not politically correct or, or woke, so I'm just going to call it the way it is. Watch, Go out in your own life and watch how single mothers, even good single mothers, and by the way, I'm not saying that every child of a single mother becomes a criminal. I'm <laughs> That's what I was about to ask you. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. I'm saying that there are lots of young men and women who were raised great by single mothers, but all the inmates were the product of single mothers. And here is the difference between a child raised by a, in, by a single mother that turns out well and one that turns out badly. The one that turns out well almost always has other male figures that take the place of the missing father. So whether it's a grandfather or an uncle or, or a cousin or... In, in the case of maybe uh, a gay couple, the gay lover, someone takes the father's role, okay? As long, it, it's not really important whether it's your natural father or your adoptive father, or your grandfather or your uncle, but there has to be a strong male influence in your life. And most of, in virtually all the cases, if you're honest, and you meet someone who was raised great by a single mother, there will always be some other man out there somewhere. 
Maybe it's you remarried and it was the stepfather. I see what you mean. But there was someone, yeah, someone to teach those lessons. But if you don't have that man, here's what happens is particularly in the urban uh, areas, and this is why our cities are falling apart. We destroyed the nuclear family beginning in 1965. Okay, you know, there's an old saying that says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And in 1965, Lyndon Johnson, who is, I think, arguably the most effective president in American history, I'm not best and effective are two different things. Lyndon Johnson passed more laws in three months than his predecessor, John Kennedy, did in three years. Lyndon Johnson passed more, more civil rights legislation than everybody else in the history of the United States combined. He he passed an enormous amount of legislation, and he called it the war on poverty. But the problem is, is that it's failed, and it did exactly the opposite of what it was intended to do. So it, it, it more than anything else, has destroyed the, um, the, the uh, traditional nuclear family, particularly in neighborhoods of color. But I'll get to that in a minute. So, but since that time, and since we've, we've had a number of generations, the, but to go back, the original generation, AFDC, which is welfare, aid the family with dependent children, pays mothers to have children. It only pays if you have your child out of wedlock. In other words, married couples can't get money for children, but a single mother has had a child can. So you might as well put up a sign that says, have a baby and we'll pay you money to leave home. That's That was the effect of that, by the way. And then as each successive generation is born, I'll give you a good example, and because we, and because we're talking particularly about people of color in this podcast, that's what I'm going to use. From 1945 until 1960, black poverty in this country dropped 47 percent, and that was in the middle of Jim Crow, which tells you how remarkable the progress was, despite the fact there was an enormous amount of discrimination going on at the time. Still, black people were able to lift themselves out of poverty, and poverty had dropped in the black community by 47 percent. Now. Mind you, in 1960, there was still 31% of the black population lived in poverty versus 15% of the white. So I'm not saying that the job was over. I'm just saying there was a lot of progress. It went from 60% or 70% of the black population to 31%. So that was a big progress. Now, here was the difference. In 1960, 86% of black children were born into two-parent families. Okay, the mother and the father were at home. And today, it's exactly reversed. Okay, 82% of black children today are born without a father at home. And that, it, to a huge extent, explains That's a really what big number. Our... Yeah, it's a big number. And I, it was mostly I, caused by AFDC. That, sir. <laughs> so right at, I'll give you my source, CNN. I mean, I, it's not like I'm using some right-wing Fox News source. CNN uh, came up with that. Um, no, the only reason why I, I ask because I have to fact check it because, you know, maybe please do. from my perspective that, you know, I've, I was raised with both my parents and my cousins were raised with their parents. Um, so I just never realized that type of statistic until I went to college. And I was very, very pissed off when this white kid said that to me. That, um, But That's I true. do know that people have been divorced and I've seen like co-parenting growing up in the hood. Um, but, you know... Sure. I, I, it's it's very, very interesting. Um, it's very, very interesting that it's something I would have to look into for myself and see because please do, you know, please do. <laughs> Let me tell you, there, uh, there are literally hundreds of peer-reviewed sociological studies that prove what I'm saying. There, there are, there is literally yeah. no study in existence that contradicts what I just said. Feel mm. free to double-check it. it's the 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 evidence of this is 
mountainous. You won't have to look very far. Okay. And to talk about the now, nuclear family real quick. Um, sure. So the GI Bill, for instance, the the the, and then also what uh, what uh, Roosevelt did. We're talking about the uh, the great the New Deal. Deal, the New Deal. That was all purpose. Someone can argue that that was all benefiting and purposely for white people only, and no one was able to get any benefit that was non-white from those two bills until Linda B. Johnson came in. And, you know, poverty, capitalism, you have to have poverty. What what, what else could you have done with poverty? You you know what I'm saying? I'm going to lay it out for you. First of all, I wanted (laughs) to correct a little something that you said, just a little bit. Okay. Um, Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal, ended in World War II. So the where the New Deal came Correct, from yeah. is that in, in 1933, um, when, when Franklin Roosevelt came to power, the New Deal was already in place. Herbert Hoover, his predecessor, had already done all of those things. What Roosevelt did was is took Herbert Hoover's programs and made them much bigger. Okay, so okay. A, what a lot of people don't understand is that in the 20th century, there were two depressions, but one of them is forgotten. Okay, okay. the forgotten depression took place in 1920. And it was over by 1921. And the president at the time was Warren Harding. And Warren Harding, when when the Depression came over the country, and what a depression is, by the way, is a very deep recession where you get unemployment over 10 percent and uh, and you get uh, productivity dropping by over 10 percent. That's that's a depression. Okay, so we had a depression in 1920. It was a very bad one. But what Warren Harding did was nothing. He did exactly the right thing. Some Sometimes the best thing, in fact, almost always, the best thing to do about almost anything is nothing. If you just leave it alone, natural forces will correct themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, let, but let me explain. By the way, I didn't come up with that. That <laughs> a big part of the 1964 plan is Taoism. Are you familiar with Taoism, Jamar? A little bit, not much. Okay, so da- Tao is spelled T-A-O. It sounds like D-A-O, but it's T-A-O. Tao. It looks like Tao. Taoism was founded by a man named Lao Tzu. 600 years before the birth of Christ. And it's a religion, but it's also a philosophy. I don't ascribe to the religious part, but the philosophy, the core tenet of the philosophy is, and this is dates back 3,000 years at this point, is that almost always, what, what, what Lao Tzu says, it is better to do nothing than to be, to be busy doing nothing. Okay, think about that. It's better to do nothing than to be busy doing nothing. And that's because when you get when you do something that that you think is something, it always ends up being nothing because of unintended consequences. You didn't realize what happened when you went to do it in the first place, which which is where the old saying comes from. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Okay, people do a lot of things for good intentions, but in reality, they end up being much worse than if they would have done nothing at all. Okay, so. The New Deal, when, when World War II started in 1940, we couldn't afford to do both the New Deal, the, you know, the WPA, the CCC, all these other programs. We couldn't do that at the same time and fight the Second World War. Something had to happen. So the New Deal was shut down. So Franklin Roosevelt is, is um, what's the word I'm looking for? Irrelevant to this conversation. He really has nothing to do with it. Okay. Now. Well, I'll just give an example because we're talking about handouts which why the nuclear family dissolved in the black community but also there was handouts in the white community and i don't hear anything about exactly that the dissolved. same thing 
Well, but it did. It, it did exactly. But it did. Fifty-two percent of children today are born without their father of all races combined. If you okay. take all races combined, fifty-two percent of children today are born without a father. That's um, eighty-two percent of blacks, fifty-six percent of Latinos, uh, almost forty percent of whites, and it's all these numbers are rising. And about seventeen percent of Asians. Asians have the least amount. So it's no coincidence, by the way that the highest earning group in the United States per capita is not white people, it's Asians, by far. So yeah, the I've average, heard that, yeah. Oh, yeah, the average income in the United States, per the, the average per capita income in the United States is $55,000. I'm sorry, family income is $55,000. The average Asian family income is $75,000. So, the, and and it, it's 50% higher than all, the, than all the white people is what I'm telling you. So it, it's... It really comes down to why are the Asians more successful than anybody else? Because their family units are unbelievably cohesive. And anybody who's mm, been around okay. Asian families knows that, right? I mean, yeah. if you have Asian friends, and when I say Asian, I don't care what kind of Asian, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Indian, take your pick. You know, it's, they all have an extremely cohesive family unit. But no, I'm not pointing my finger at Black America. I'm pointing my finger at America. Oh, I know. It's, I know you're not America. pointing your finger at Black America. It, you're actually yeah. more respectful on the topic than the conversations I've had with starch Black and white Republicans that are just. Well, that's because I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to. <laughs> All I'm trying to do is present a solution. You know. Right. How it's implemented, we'll get to that later. But I mean, all I'm trying to do is present the solution, not not talk politics and talk bullshit. You right. know, you know, politicians are weasels, glad handing, conniving weasels and of uh, both parties who take a poll before they take a shit to see if it's going to be popular. So I really disregard everything they say. I mean, I okay. just got to be honest with you. No OK, problem. now. I dwell, the reason I focused on the black community is, A, you're obviously black, Jamar, and this is a show focused on black people, so I'm going to obviously speak yeah. to that. Plus, as I told you before the show, and I'll tell the, the viewers, I rolled black in prison. Because right. the Aryan brothers who ran the white groups hated me because I was a Jew, I rolled black. So I know I don't look it, but I was black for five years. And you know what? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I know how white I look, but, you know, you know. <laughs> but I got along great. I got along great with my black brothers because, and by the way, in prison, we were called kinfolk. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the white guys are the woods. The black guys are the kinfolks. The Chicanos are just Chicanos. The foreign Latinos are paisas, which is the word for paisa means country in Spanish. Okay. So mm -hmm. paisas are the guys from the countries, from the out of the country um, who are not, who are Latino. And then there are the chiefs, the Native Americans, and then there's hardly any Asians. So it's like a little smattering, but there, there's no Asian. I think I've met three Asian guys in five years. I mean, they really don't go to yeah, prison. I've, very I've heard so, that. Yeah. Very small. Yeah. And and when they do, the, the Asians I met, they rolled Chicano. Most of them rolled Chicano. But because, again, the white guys are awful. They're, they're, they're an awful <laughs> lot of Nazis. Well. Look, I know a lot of nice white people, but you're not going to meet a lot of them in prison. I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, it, there, there are places to meet nice white people. Prison is not one of them. I'm just saying. Okay, so at least in my very first, and I have firsthand experience. I'm not, I'm not talking from bullshit, right? I'm talking, <laughs> right. Well, I've been there. <laughs> That's what makes me different from all the other bullshit artists who try to put forth a, a plan. Okay, so let's get back to prison reform. Yeah. Now we've segregated these kids, and we're going to send all the kids um, who are not gangsters, we're going to send them all. And I say, I'm using the term kids now because I'm 66 years old and they're all kids to me. And mm -hmm. plus, 
Um, I'm using it because it's generic gender-wise. It doesn't speak to male, female, or anything else, right? It just speaks th these convicted kids. And again, I'm not here to talk about gender and all that bullshit. That's politics. Well, let's just stick with the subject matter at hand. I'll let the yeah. politicians figure that bullshit out. So, um, which, anyway. So, by the way, in prison, one of the big myths in prison is that you're going to get um, raped as a man in prison. That's just not true. Um, mm. In fact, we all laughed at it. They all showed us videos like "Don't take a Snickers." But I mean, it was so funny. They would they oh, played all these warning videos of, of how. Let me tell you something. If you want to have sex in prison, you can have sex in prison. Now it's going to be homosexual sex, but you know, in in real life, there are a lot of men who, when they're just horny, they'll take it the way it comes. You know what I mean? And now I'm not one of them, but there's nobody forcing anybody into anything in prison. Was there sex in prison? Yes. Was there gay sex in prison? Yes. Was it rape? Never. It was consensual. And it took place in the in mostly in the bathrooms and the showers. And, you know, it just did. And that's why I always try to take my shower as soon as the showers were clean, because I didn't want to be in there after they, you know, all over the shower stall, if you know what I mean. But anyway, listen, there's a certain reality to life. Hey, li listen, there's one thing I've learned is that I can I can tolerate anything at this point in my life. I have learned to deal with anything. I right. Can see it. So, I can feel it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, nothing. I, I, I make it sound like it's no big deal, but it's really no big deal. Look, yeah. If two consent, consenting adults want to go to the one place in the prison where there's no cameras and get their rocks off, you know, it was easy for me. As, as now, when I was in prison, I wasn't 66. I was in my 50s, but I was still to the point in my life where I could control my libido. You know, as you get older, it goes. So you can, you know, you know, I could stay celibate for a few years because it was not a big, but when you're 18, 19, 21 years old, you know, all you think about is getting off. So they do. So, but don't, no one's getting raped. Mother's out there watching this or worried if your son goes to prison, is he going to be raped? No, he's not. Not unless he wants to be, you know, I mean, if, if he wants to have sex, he's going to have sex. Okay. Let me get back. I went off way too long on that one, but that's really a bullshit myth. Okay. Now maybe there, maybe in the, in the lifer yards, maybe they rape people, but down with were you in federal else. or were you in in in, in, in um, state state you were in state. state okay oh yeah federal prisons are are holidays compared to state prisons Just yeah that's me. why I asked yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no I was in the Arizona state prison system this was no holiday this yeah, was a real okay. shit show but but this is when I learned how to reform them I would never know what I'm talking about but for this experience that's what I'm saying right. okay and. I'm probably the right spokesman to reform prison in a lot of ways because I'm white. Because when black people talk about prison reform, a lot of particularly conservative people shut them off because they immediately assume it's a BLM discussion and they just go right to shut up. They don't even listen to what's yeah. being said. OK, yeah. but, you know, uh, I look like Santa Claus, so at least I can get the words out of my mouth before they shut me off. All right. <laughs> and let's just be honest about that. All right. So. We're in prison. We've segregated. We got all these young men, all these kids. They're going to basic training without guns. Everything about basic training the same, except no guns. They learn to. And the reason this is important is because since they, these kids were raised almost universally without fathers, we need to teach them those values that fathers would have taught them had they been raised with a father. And by the way, as we talked about the term father, I mean, some male in their life, it could be a grandfather, it could be an uncle, but these are the kids that had nothing. Their mothers were born without fathers. They were born without fathers. You know, they, when I say without, obviously they had a father, but they were a sperm donor. They, they, take, they took no responsibility for their children. 
Got you. Basic training teaches you boundaries, which is what fathers teach. And it teaches you one of the most important lessons in life, which is to be a good order giver, you have to first learn to be a good order taker. And that is such an important lesson in life. Because when these kids get into good jobs in the future, after we can successfully reform them and they go to work in real jobs and get real families and do real things, how do they know? You know, like, how do they know to respect the boss because of their position? Not if they're what if they're smarter than the boss? Well, in real life, you you don't say anything. You might be smarter than the boss, but that's not a team is a team. There can only be one coach, right? There can't be 50 coaches on a team. And that's an important life lesson. And that's taught in basic training and and just self-discipline and, and all the little routines. For example, I'll give you a good example. I went through basic training in 1975. I still fold my socks the way I learned in basic training. I know that sounds stupid, but I do. I still mm -hmm. hospital corner my beds to this day. Now, why do I do it? It just became a habit. And it, it looks better. It feels better. It just, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. But you learn all. And I was raised without a father myself. And um, it gave me all of those lessons, and they last for the rest of your life. And who's going to teach those lessons? We'll get retired drill instructors from the four services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, guys that have retired. Remember, in the military, you can retire after 20 years. So if you go into the military at 18 years old, you can get out at 38 with a 50% pension for the rest of your life and go to work as a drill instructor in prison and makes, I mean, it's good for them. It's good. And they're only 38 years old. It's not like they're old men. Right. So yeah. you get these retired. Retired doesn't mean old. It just means they've done their military time. Drill instructors and they know how to. The military has been been forming men and women for 250 years. They know what they're doing. Why try to reinvent something we already know how to do? Let's introduce it to the prison systems now. So you're when saying this is the best way for um, prison reform to, to basically put some structure one. into them? So to say. Step one. Yeah, this is step one. First thing, we have to give them the tools to be able to continue the reform process when we get to step two. So now mm -hmm. they've gone through through basic training. And by the way, I know there are questions about what happens if they get if they don't go through, what happens if they flunk out. That's all in the white papers. I just don't want to waste our time with all that stuff. It's yeah, no all problem. in the white papers. Okay. Well, you know, I'm happy to talk about it. But we can white be papers, here all hours. that will be in the description below. It's all that. Yeah, and it's all there. I'm just going to go over it in overview. So now they go in. One of the worst things about prison, state prison, and federal prison too, I think, but state prison for sure, is that you get punished even if you don't do it. So it's, so let's say two knuckleheads on the yard. And when I say yard, it means the, that's what inmates call the prison. The, each prison is called a yard by the inmates. So I was on um, three different prison yards. I was in Alhambra, which was the segregation prison, and that's a five yard. That's maximum security, and that's where you start. And then I went to Yuma, which was a three yard. And then I went to um, Kingman, which was a two yard on my way out. Okay. But in all of those prison yards, okay. It didn't matter if two knuckleheads got into a fight on a prison yard. Okay. They'd shut down the whole yard. And then for the next 72 hours, for the next three days, you were stuck. You couldn't go outside. You couldn't go to the library. You couldn't go to your job. You couldn't do anything. You, uh, most of us had jobs where you're next to nothing. I'll get to that in a minute. But you couldn't do anything. You were just locked down. And they would come in after a fight in particular. They'd make you strip, okay? And then, and you had nothing to do with it. That's to see, theoretically, to see if you have marks on your body, if you were secretly in the fight. But see, they already knew who was in the fight because they have closed circuits, cameras everywhere. This is just to punish and humiliate 
the other 1,800 guys in the prison. And so what it does is, is it kills all incentive to do better. If you're going to get punished for something you didn't do, okay, every day almost, almost every day, then why would you even try to do better? Okay, so after we've gotten them through basic training, we can't just drop the ball and say, okay, we're done now. Now, how do we get them to be productive adults? Okay, number one, everyone in prison needs to have a job and not a bullshit job making 50 cents an hour cleaning bathrooms. That's fine, but at least the minimum wage and most of it provided by private employers. Now, this is on today, by the way. So, for example, when I was in prison, I worked in a call center in, in Yuma. That's because, as you can tell, I speak well. So they put me on the telephones. But I made, and this was huge for prison. My pay was um, $3 an hour, out of which, after they took all their fees and bullshit, I made about $2 an hour. And I spent about, oh, maybe 50 cents an hour on prison bullshit, you know, better food and stuff out of the prison store, things like that. And then the rest of it, I put on a savings account. When I got out of prison, I had a couple thousand dollars on this card that I got when I got out of prison. But most guys get jobs that pay anywhere from 25 to 50 cents an hour, even if they go to work for a private employer. And there are lots of them. Like, for example, in, in Kingman, when I was on the yard, there was a, a private company that assembled wheelchairs. And so you would go work in this company to assemble wheelchairs, and then you would get 50 cents an hour. Well, what incentive is there to work for 50 cents an hour? And then when you throw these kids out on the street, with no money, okay, and you literally dump them on a street corner. They right. have no knowledge, no money, no background, no family, no support, no one picking them up. They're fucked, right? So what I propose is in everyone that we should invite private employers to come set up um, factories or service centers, whatever it is they do, in the prisons, okay, and in return for that, they can hire all the workers they want at, at minimum wage. So, for example, here in Arizona, it's twelve fifty an hour. I'll just use my state for an example. Okay. So the minimum wage here is twelve fifty an hour. So a guy works for twelve fifty an hour. He should get all of it. The state shouldn't take everything but fifty cents. Now, but listen, but so that he learns something from that, he doesn't get all of it in his hand right away. Because remember, he's never learned deferred gratification from a father. We have to teach him this. So. He should get 50 cents an hour to spend on prison bullshit in, in prison, but the rest of it, here's what goes. 30% of it should be taken for rent and overhead so that he understands that when he gets on the outside and he gets a real job, 30% of it's going to go to rent in, in real life. That's about what all of us pay for rent or mortgage payments is about a third of our income. So right. let's get him used to that. Let's get him used to how life is. You know, I'm making $12.50, but $3.50 is going to go to pay my overhead here in prison. That still leaves $9, right? Now, out of that $9 comes any kind of restitution or child support he has to pay. So if he committed a crime where he has to pay back the victims, um, in Arizona, it's 10% maximum. They can take 10% for that. And then if, if he has a, a child or children by, other, by baby mamas, they can get some child support for those children, where today those kids get nothing. They're not being helped by anybody, right? Not that mm -hmm. it's a lot of money, but it's some money. And, you know, sometimes bad breath is better than no breath at all. So if that baby mama on the outside is getting a check every month, which is 10% of um, the, the father of her child's income, that's going to be a decent check in addition to what other government vendor that she gets and everything else and helps her out. It also teaches him responsibility, like paying your goddamn child support. Pardon me, it's a sore subject for me. I, <laughs> you have a child, you're responsible for it. It's, and I'm the father of four, okay? So I just want to make that very clear. 
All right, so, but he still has a lot left over. Still, he's got about, of, of his 12 an hour, he ends up with about $6 left over. That $6 will go into an account earning interest that he can see the balance of anytime he wants, okay? In prison now, they give everybody, at least in Arizona, little um, computer tablets. Now, you can't access the internet outside, but they have a closed internet, so you can watch certain TV channels and you can do certain things on these little tablets. You should be able to check the balance of your prison account on that little tablet. You should be able to go, and, oh, look, I've got a thousand. This is giving them something. They're building something. They can see the interest going in. They learn the value of saving money over the period of time they're in prison. So they're that's forming them back into the real world, basically. And when they get out, however many years that is in the future, when they get out, all of that money is put onto a debit card and given to them as they walk out the door. So that they mm -hmm. start out with, with $3,000, $5,000, which is a big help. How do you throw someone on the street who doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground, who has never had anyone teach him, and has no money and expect him not to go to prison? Mm -hmm. Okay? And again, that falls hardest on communities of color. What I'm saying is, when yeah. that young man or woman gets out of prison, they're going to have a nest egg, a nice nest egg. And they're going to have gone through basic training, so they're going to understand deferred gratification and how to take an order. They're going to have held the job in prison, so they're going to know how to show up for work and do a job. And they're going to have money to go out and make a rent depart of deposit with, get some decent furniture, buy a, a decent used car. And by the way, we can teach them all that stuff, how to negotiate that. By the way, I taught those classes in prison to my fellow kinfolk for free. I used to have mm -hmm. private classes. That we would have them under the ramadas out on the yard, on the outdoor yard, and all the all the young black men would come around, and I would teach them with a yellow pad how to budget and how to plan for their money. So when they got out, they wouldn't just get thrown on the street with no skills at all. I don't know how many I helped, if any, but I tried. Okay, but I'm saying the whole prison should do that. There should be a course. Okay, and, and if you're really budgeting and you're dealing with real money and it's really yours, that lesson is driven home. Now that's step two. The third step is. As you comply with the rules after basic training, and as you are a good inmate, you don't start fights, you don't do drugs, you, you know, you're, you're a good inmate, you should get increased privileges that you earn over time. There should be a reward for doing things the right way. You shouldn't be punished for somebody else doing things the wrong way. Does that make sense? Right. So, and so let's say you're looking at a kid that's looking at a 10-year stretch for armed robbery, okay? So he's not a bad kid. He just did something stupid. And now he's going to do 10 years. So now he's, he, he got his gang ink off when he came in. He went to basic training. He got through it. He's, he's got a job. He's earning money. He's putting it on the books. Now, what do we do to make this kid really learn to live operating positively? And the answer is, as he's in prison, the longer he goes, the more privilege and freedoms he earns. So, and by the way, I didn't make this mm. up. This is how they do it in Norway and Sweden yes. and Germany. Yep. Okay. Yep. This is, I, I'm stealing this from, from them, but it works. Okay. So, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, by the way, I get so upset with Americans thinking that this is the greatest country in the world. And what we think of as the best way. And I, I, we get too big headed with that. It's okay to, I, I'm all about, <laughs> I am all about copying a good idea from somebody else. I mean, right. why is it important you thought of it? All right, so the Norwegians and the Swedes and the Danish and the Finns and the Icelanders and the Latvians and Lithuanians and the Germans and the Italians, they all do it better than we do it. Even the British do it better than we do it. We yeah. have to give them a reason to behave. Yep. Okay? So ultimately, and it, you know, it could be little things. Like the first step could be 
maybe you have two chow halls. One chow hall is where you just get what you're handed through this grate. But after you earn your way through a little bit, you go to the chow hall where it's a buffet and you have a little choice and the food's a little better. And maybe sometimes they bring in some outside stuff like one day is McDonald's day and everything that they have quarter pounders. And shit, it would cost next to nothing. And remember, without the drug war, where's the money going to come to pay for all this? Let me back up quickly and, and point this out. In Arizona, mm -hmm. we spend, I'm just going to use my state because I know the number's cold, but this is true in every state. Mm -hmm. In Arizona, we spend $1.1 billion a year on prisons. Now, ev now, every state spends most of its money on three things, prisons, infrastructure, and schools. Okay, those are the three things the states spend money on. Right. Obviously, it would be better if they only spent money on two things, infrastructure and schools. Right, if ideally. We, if we, legalize, <laughs> if we legalize drugs, if we legalize drugs, 80% of the prison population will just go away. What that means is that costs will drop by 80%. So in Arizona, we would have $800 million a year left over to do the things I'm talking about, just right. in Arizona. Now multiply that by 50 states, and that's $40 billion a year. And that's not including the savings on, the, on shutting down the drug enforcement cops and all that other bullshit they waste money on. All the things that... It all sounds like they're going to, I mean, they haven't stopped the drug yet. So let's just cut the bullshit and call it the way things are. Okay. Right. It's, it's uh, anyway, I don't want to go back there again, but that's where the money's <laughs> coming from. That's why yeah, drug right. legalization is so important. Okay. Back to prison now. So they have a little better child hall. Maybe they get a little, little, little Cedars pizza now and then, whatever they bring it in. They just, just better. Then maybe the next step up is they get um, better jobs. They're able to work outside the prison instead of having a job inside the prison. They're able to go out in the community and maybe work on a golf course or work in a factory, whatever it is. But they're trusted enough to be taken to. And getting outside the prison gates, let me tell you, would be an enormous, just to even see the, the regular world as you're taken by bus to where you're going. And to be able to operate like a normal person is great. Then maybe other privileges, like, for example, instead of having to wear prison orange all the time, when you get to a certain level, you can wear what you want. You know, you... I mean, these are easy things that you can give inmates to help them earn privileges to make them feel special for having done something right. Ultimately, for a kid that's in for 10 years, he should be able to work his way all the way up to conjugal visits. So if you're a really, really good inmate and you kept all the rules, and let's say after five years, you've been just perfect, you should be able to see your wife or girlfriend and get laid at least once a month. You know, and by the way, again, it's being done successfully in other places. They yeah. basically have little tiny homes and apartments or single wide yeah. mobile homes. They keep nice and clean and they let the inmates go in there and spend an afternoon with their loved one. And why not? Okay. Because you're reforming this person into being a productive part of society instead of someone who's going to go right back in prison again and cost us all a lot of money and have a ruined life and have no chance. Okay. Instead, we're going to give this person a chance. Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to earn that privilege. I agreement with this right here. Okay. Top of the line. Okay. <laughs> now, that's that's basic prison reform. I'm being basic, and much more right. is in the white paper. Right. But we, what we want to do is we want to stop throwing out perfectly good people like they have no value. And that's what we right. do now. Once they're right. tarred with that. So we want to stop. Basically, here's the summary. Stop putting people in prison that don't belong there. Addiction is a health problem, not a criminal problem. Let's stop criminalizing addiction. Two, let's teach these young men and women how to be young men and women, and three, give them an incentive to perform, and four, when they're released, let them have a little money because you cannot possibly succeed in America without a little money. You no. just can't.
Okay, so there you go. Yeah, what else I do you mean, want to ask? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, we, we have a little bit of time, so I have the last one. We could go right into the homelessness because this is also a huge okay, part homelessness. of, you know, a huge part of, like, why a lot of homeless people go in and out of jail. Um, well, let's talk about, I, I have a <laughs> I got it. I got homelessness fixed. Okay, so the reason I know a lot about homelessness is so many people in prison were homeless. So mm -hmm. when I first went to prison, sometimes guys would say to me, hey, OG, what are you going to do when you get out on the street? Or what do you do on the street? I used to think that was a metaphor. But for a lot of these guys, they meant on the street. They really live on the street. Now, there are two groups of homeless people, generally speaking. There's mm -hmm. the mentally ill. That's about half of them. Right. And there's the really, really hardcore drunks. They're mostly drunks. Okay. Very few drug drug addicts among the homeless, only because alcohol is cheaper. So when you're homeless, it's much easier to get a bottle of 2020 than it is to get heroin. And they're and they're they're so the homeless are so beaten down, they don't even have the energy to steal. Okay. I mean, they so they 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 become alcoholics because that's what's readily available. This is mostly alcoholism, some drug addiction. Okay, but here's what I would do for the, now. The mentally ill use alcohol and drugs on the street because they hate the way the psych drugs make them feel. Okay, the majority of them, and again, this is firsthand experience. I'm not a psychologist. I've just been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. Okay, most, and I knew lots of these guys. They're all schizophrenics. They, I mean, I knew one guy that used to sit out in the prison yard and like draw words in the sand up to the sky so that his brother could see him on Google Earth. I mean, this guy was a lunatic, really. He would talk to people all the time. He'd be in the showers talking to Im imaginary people. And these guys all did that. There's just lots of these guys because the state didn't have the money or the facilities or the desire or whatever it might be or the politicians or whatever it is to do anything other than use the prisons to house these crazy people. I'm saying we have to have a little compassion. First of all, in the whole United States, on any given night, there's about 600,000 homeless people. Now, that number is pretty steady, although people come in and out of homelessness, okay? But in any given day, there's about 600,000 across America. Half of them are mentally ill. Let's, that's not that many people in a country of 340 million people. It's a one-hundredth of one percent. We can afford to do this, okay? Listen to what I'm saying. Take part of this drug money that we're not spending anymore, and let's build in every... Every city, every major city, every state, however you want to do it, really nice sanitariums, not prisons, sanitariums, really nice. So that when these people are and then instead of sending up the police to go get them, let's have groups of professional social workers who go out onto the street and find these mentally ill people, not arrest them, but take them to the sanitarium where they don't have to take psych drugs if they don't want to. If they want to take drink themselves. The difference here is we're not going to try to live their lives for them. If they want to take, you know, um, lithium and all those things, fine. If they want to take treatment, fine. But instead, let's stop trying to fix people that aren't going to be fixed. Let's accept that some of these people, this particular group of people, are permanently damaged. So what we have to do is have compassion for them as human beings and take care of them. Stop trying to preach to them. Stop trying to make them into what they're not, what they don't want to be. They're not trying to live to be 100 years old. They're trying just to get through the day. So as, when I say sanitarium, I'm thinking of a place where they have like a dorm room, nice and quiet and safe and clean, privately to themselves. And, you know, with a nice bed and a nice chair and a nice desk if they want. 
And, you know, just because you're crazy doesn't mean you, you don't have moments of lucid, you know, things for them to do. Think, and then all the free alcohol and drugs they want. I mean, I, I'm not saying this to be funny. Stop trying to make if they, they there ought to be a, 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 a cooler at the end of the floor. Where you can go down and pick up your bottle of malt liquor, or your can of malt liquor, or your bottle of 2020 or whatever it is that you like to do. Let them have it. They're Stop trying. And, but keep them safe. Right. Don't leave them out in the street. And by right. the way, one of the interesting things I learned in prison was homeless people aren't dirty. Yeah. Homeless people aren't dirty. They're dirty on the street because they have no place else to clean. And the reason they don't go to the shelters is because they don't want the rules. It's not that, yeah, they could go to the Salvation Army, but if you go to the Salvation Army, is very religiously oriented. They're going to have a no drugs policy. Right. Well, these people don't. They want to take their, they want to drink. They want to stop preaching to them. I want to drink. Hopelessly, have a right. whole apartment and I want to drink. <laughs> well, you you and I are of the 90% of people in this country who can drink without becoming drunks. That's part that we never talk about. Nine out of 10 mm -hmm. people can use any drug without getting addicted. I've tried everything over the years. Mm -hmm. I'm not addicted to anything. Why? Because yeah. I'm not addictive. Neither are you. Yeah, I don't um, have that you know, trait, yeah. But one out of 10 people do, and a tiny percentage of them... The other thing we never talk about is how many people are functional addicts. I mean, there are a lot of people who can do drugs and live their lives. And we never talk about that like grownups. But <laughs> listen, how many people do you know in your life that's an alcoholic that function perfectly fine? I can name about 10. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll give you a really good example. Just slight digression. I grew up part of my lifetime in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. Everybody but us was Irish and Catholic. Oh, that meant, Iron. Okay. This is in Pittsburgh, but trust me on this. <laughs> they drink they drink a lot. Irish people drink a lot. Mothers and fathers, it's part of the culture. Most of them are alcoholics that I ever knew growing up. But guess what? They were also good mothers and fathers. It was just part of the culture. You know, we got to stop preaching. You know, it, you can be an alcoholic. It's the, I, I, I don't I'm not trying to say it's good. I'm saying it's not the end of the world. There are plenty of people that are listening to me right now. Mm -hmm. who are functional alcoholics, if they're honest with themselves, or functional drug addicts. You know, I've, there are people that have done heroin for 40 years and no one knows it because they're functional. They know how to do it. There's a there's a professor right now at, at uh, Columbia University. I can't think of his name. Who's written a very uh, Carl book. Hart, you, I believe his name. Carl Hart, that's right, who yeah. did an excellent book on the use of heroin functionally. Right. Okay. Um, again, I'm not go I'm not advocating drug use. I'm saying stop living other people's lives for them. So for the for that half of the back to the homeless for that half of the homeless that is hopelessly mentally damaged, just keep them safe and quiet. We are a compassionate enough country that we can afford to put three hundred thousand people in a quiet place. It's not a prison. They can leave if they want to, but they won't right. want to leave. And they'll be clean. What the point I was going to make is in prison they're very clean. They shower all the time. They clean their own houses. They're not dirty by choice. They're dirty by necessity on the street. But when they have their own place, they know how to use a toilet like everybody else. They don't have to shit on the street. It's that they have no choice, okay? And they know how to use a shower. So let them live their life quietly, cleanly, safely, addicted. And when they die, they die. But they're happy. And that's sometimes the best you can hope for, right?
And then, mm. and they're also not bothering anybody else. And that's the mm. best you can hope for. Now, mm. for the other half of the homeless population, the part that are not mentally, well, we're all crazy. I mean, let's be honest, Jamar, you and I, have all, we've all got our crazies. But I don't I'm know what normal about, is, honestly. <laughs> right. Well, the, let's say the half that are normally crazy. They have their crazies, but they're not off the deep end of crazy, right? They're not schizophrenic. Right. Those people are just, man, when you hear their stories and why they became homeless addicts, man, it'll make your hair fall out. I mean, yeah. you know, for example, among the white people in this country, a lot of white people just don't appreciate what poverty can be and what and, and how low things can get because mm -hmm. they just live in a very insulated world. And I have the unique you know, experience of getting out of that world. So I can tell you, oh, my God, they have problems they're not going to overcome. Now, they're not mentally ill, but they're emotionally permanently damaged. And all they want to do is, again, get through their lives. They just want to get from A to B. So what I suggest doing for them is on the outskirts of every major city, I don't care if it's New York, L.A., Chicago, Detroit, Miami, Baltimore, Phoenix, Portland, I don't give a shit what city you're talking about. Just find a nice big piece of industrial land away from everybody's houses. Clear it, make it nice. And on that land, put on tiny houses. Now, you've all seen these. A tiny house is anything under 500 square feet. Mm -hmm. And these are manufactured homes. They're not trailers because they don't have wheels. But that's really the only difference. They're manufactured homes that are placed on a permanent foundation that are basically studio apartments. But they're separate. They're your own space. I propose on the outskirts of every city, they build one of these communities large enough to handle the entirety of the not mentally ill, not going to the sanitarium, homeless population. So let's say in this, I'll, let's pretend I'm the mayor of Los Angeles. And I know that in my city, there's 100,000 of those people on any given day. I'll make sure 100,000 of those units is not very many in a city of, of greater Los Angeles, 12, 13 million people. Okay, let's provide a place to take those people. Let's give them their own tiny home with the key doing Houston. It's, yes. Austin, not Houston, Austin. Austin. Well, Austin's a very progressive city and a not very progressive state. But mm -hmm. um, but let's let's not point our finger at anything. Let's just take a look. Yes, you're right. Let's mm -hmm. put those tiny homes on the outskirts of the city. Again, not a prison. They can leave if they want to. But here's why they'll never leave. They get their own personal home rent free. They get all the food they can eat for free. They get all the booze or drugs they want for free. Now, on the clinic site, there's also, I mean, on the on the property site, there's a clinic for the inevitable overdose. Okay, we'll have trained medical staff, a nurse, a doctor all the time, 24-7. And trained staff, for when it's not an if, it's going to happen. Let's just assume it's going to happen. We'll yeah. have people there for them all the time. And for those people, and this, there are always a few that really want to turn their lives around, we'll have full-time counselors and staff and and therapy sessions and group and all those things, but it's all voluntary. If you don't, if you'd rather just sit in your little tiny home and drug or drink yourself into oblivion quietly, that's all right. Go right ahead. Well, and you will never leave. I mean, they're I not out, They're not outside. They're not in the weather. Yeah. They're not being attacked. They're right. not being arrested. And they're not going to leave because it's a great deal for them. I mean, they're yeah. not stupid. Yeah. Uh, homeless and stupid are two different things, folks. I mean, right. just remember that. They're a human being just like you. They just had some horrible background thing that scarred them so deeply that it's, it's beyond repair. Okay. That they are, think of them as cars. They've been totaled.
These are totaled cars, but they're still cars, and we have to treat them respectfully and just let them live their life. And maybe that life is five years and maybe it's 10 years. There's not going to be long, but whatever it is, accept that's what it is, and believe me, they'll be happy. There will be no complaints, okay? Mm -hmm. Just live your life quietly. Now, is that a perfect solution? No. Is it a cure for homelessness? No, it's a solution, okay? Mm -hmm. The trade-off is we're going to have to accept that we're going to have a certain amount of homeless people. But we are. So what? That's not a bad trade-off. We already have that. But what we gain is our cities are suddenly cleaned up. There's no more shit in the sidewalks, no more tents on the street, no more threatening of people that, that have their homes in all the different communities of the street. Same thing with ending the drug war, okay? Suddenly, the inner cities become peaceful. There's no reason. I mean, it just goes away. Yeah. We, The government and our programs have caused all this shit. These aren't caused by evil people. They're caused by stupid ideas that people, that politicians have put in. And because our school, our school system is so awful, most people just have no tools to critically think and, and look at these things. It's not that they're stupid. They just were never taught how. Right. That's not, but and that schools are another subject altogether, but we've got yeah. to educate our kids, particularly in the cities better, but that's another subject. Where else yeah. do you want to go, Jamar? I got the homeless guy solved. Oh, oh no. Um, we're almost, we're, we've got 10 minutes left. But I wanted to say that I am very, 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 uh, I want to give a comment on the homelessness. I want to say that this is the type of initiatives that I agree with, because when I was with the nonprofit Life in My Days, we had peer support groups for homeless people as well, too. And there was no preaching or talking at or saying, don't you want to have live a life of value? You know, all that uh, nonsense, that guru dumb shit. It was, what is your goal? What do you want to achieve? How can we help you get towards your goal? I don't want to sit here and be like, okay, you need to go to the homeless shelter. You need to get yourself cleaned up. All this nonsense. How can we help you get your goal? I'm, what is your goal? And all I'm doing, I think those groups are great. And homeless guys love to talk in groups. And I think that's mm -hmm. awesome. As long as you're not making, but listen. It's all I'm saying is give them a safe place to live while you're doing it. That's all. Right. Let's give them. A, and let's also protect the people of the city that pay their taxes. Look, a family doesn't spend, you know, however many dollars on a home to have a homeless guy camped in front of it. It's not fair to the family buying the home. But what, it doesn't have to be a win lose. It could be a win win. Let's give the homeless guy his house just in a place where he isn't bothering anybody. So that the other family who's doing it, you know, the traditional way can live their lives in peace and quiet. And everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. And it's all paid for by giving up the stupid, stupid, stupid drug war. I mean, the biggest thing we could do to help race relations in this country would be to end the drug war, in my opinion. Right. Okay. You. I mean, <laughs> instead I of putting signs like, and, yeah, you know, putting end racism signs in the, in the end zones of football games does nothing. Because no, it doesn't. It's liberal bullshit. No, no, it's liberal <laughs> bullshit because a racist isn't going to change his mind over a sign that says, oh, and racism. I never thought of that. Okay, <laughs> Fuck that asshole. That motherfucker. Stop worrying about him. Can, can I share with you that the what I used to tell my 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 black young men, my, my yard sons, I was a yard dad. What they used to call me was the yard dad. Wow. And so these were my yard sons. And a lot mm -hmm. of them called me dad. An awful lot called me dad. And here's what mm -hmm. I would tell my fellow kinfolk yard sons, find a way and fuck them. Now, now, now let, me, let me explain this, okay? 
I'm just prepared for that. Okay. Why not? This isn't in the. I'm just going to tell you how I taught my yard sons. Okay. We would sit in a circle and they'd go into how all the reasons why they couldn't get ahead, all the things that were held against them. And I would listen instead of. See, here, here's where people go wrong. Don't cut people off when they're telling you what's setting them. Let them get it off their chest. That's number one. Where a lot of people go wrong is they shut off, they shut themselves off because of their cognitive biases and they stop listening. So the minute it, a, a white guy, for example, listens to a young black man start to talk about how he's been held back because he's black, a white guy just turns off, most of them, and they just stop listening. Okay, so the first thing that I did that was different is I listened because I have no experience... I'm not black. I didn't grow up in a poor black neighborhood in the inner city. Fuck do I know? So I'm going to learn a lot more if I shut the fuck up and listen. So I spent the first part just listening. I would sit around while we said it. You know, you sit out. You have a lot of time on your hands in prison, a lot, you know. And so I would sit out and shoot the shit with these guys and listen. And then over time, I started to see what was really going on. So here was the advice I gave them. Instead of Guys, I understand you've been a victim of a lot of things. I'm pretending I'm talking to a group of guys now. This is just me pretending. But I want you to consider that the most persecuted people in the history of the world are not black people, it's Jews. We're the most, per we've been killed by every culture for the last 4,000 years. There isn't, there isn't a society that we have been in that we haven't been slaughtered sooner or later, whether it was the Spanish Inquisition or the Holocaust, okay, or everything in between. Jews, have been shit on and murdered and slaughtered for centuries, okay? So I'm not telling you you have to have sympathy for it, I'm just the opposite. Why are Jews so successful even when there's so many anti-Semites? Look, like right now today, anti-Semites are marching on the streets right now, right now in America, okay, over this Israel thing. And I'm, I don't want to get into a fight about it at all. I'm just pointing it out. Here's why Jews aren't going to get engaged by that. We already knew they were here. This this is nothing surprising to Jews. When we when we see you know Rashida Tlaib or whatever her name is from Minnesota spouting her 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 genocide talk, it's like okay, there they go again, right? But here's what's interesting, and and here's the example I always use with my with my black sons. I would ask them this question: Would you agree with me that most of show business is controlled by Jews? Would you say that's a true statement, Jamar? Would you say the show business, Hollywood, is dominated by Jews? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, but that's only because they had to find a way to. Uh, that's it. That's money. it. You see, now you get it. When the Jews came to this country, um, the big Jewish immigration came at the, at the end of the 19th century to the 20th. That's when my grandfather came at the early 20th century. I can honestly look you in the eye and say I have no slaveholding history because my people weren't even here. We came. We came in. My grandfather came in 1914. Okay, so, but when he came here, everybody hated Jews. So what did the Jews do? We just started, we just found a way and fought them. So we invented, you know why we control Hollywood? Because we invented it. Why did we invent Hollywood? Because we couldn't do anything. There were so many other places we couldn't right. be. Right. Okay, they wouldn't let us into their law firms. They wouldn't let us right. into their hospitals. They wouldn't let us into their, so fuck them. We found our own way. Find a way and fuck them. It got to be so popular, that sentence. I used to walk around the yard and, Young black guys would yell at me for, Jay, Jay, find a way and fuck them. It was, it's really so much healthier than be a victim. Even if you really are a victim, I'm not denying that there's a victimhood to black, being black in America. Of course there is. Don't be an idiot. Okay. But how are we going to really do something about it? And the answer is do it the way the Jews did it. Find a way and fuck them. 
But you can't do that without the tools. And you can't shit all over the, the black neighborhoods in America, to use that as an example, and expect them to magically know what to do. That's why it's all part of, it's all holistic. And that's what the 1964 plan is. Let's reform and start treating it as a body instead of each little individual issues. And stop letting policy be driven by what you want to be true instead of being driven by objective reality. Okay, there is an objective reality, and it might not be what you like, but it's real nonetheless. So when you make an, have an idea, you have to do it based on the objective reality, not on the make-believe bullshit in your head. Okay, you're not going to make people magically think your way. It's just not going to, and you're not going to beat them into it. You're not going to coerce them into it. It's time. I'll give you a really good example. When I was a kid in the 1960s, if a mixed-race couple walked into a restaurant, the whole place would go silent. And everybody would stare. Okay. It, it, it just wasn't done. You just didn't see mixed race couples. Today, who gives a fuck? Right. I mean, really, literally, who gives a fuck? Yeah. My girlfriend is Mexican right now, but Mexican American, but Mexican. Who gives a fuck? You know, does anyone go, oh, look, look at the Jew with the Mexican person? No, no one gives a shit anymore. No one cares. Okay. That's progress, believe it or not. M American modern culture is dominated by black modern culture. Okay. Good. Good, but that's the kind of progress that really changes things. Not preaching, not whining, not asking for victimhood, but just make it happen. Take it over. Take over professional sports. Take over the music business. Take over the, the publishing industry. Take, take it over. Stop fucking around. Find a way and fuck them. Mm. And by the way, if we prepare people with the tools to do it, they can do it, but they can't do it if they have no tools. And that's where the breakdown comes. And that's why, when I say they, that portion of, of the population that grows up in these horrible conditions, you can't expect somebody who grows up fatherless on the streets of Detroit to compete with a kid from Amherst, you, you, a, a white kid. It, it's ridiculous. Okay. But if you can give that kid the tools, he has all the native ability in the world. Okay. He just needs to get the road opened. And that's what the 1964 is plan is about is to prevent mm. it from happening again and to take care of the people it's already happened to both mm. so as you know there's lots in the plan about restoring the nuclear family which is the root of all of this and how to put things back at least somewhat the way they were so we can get returned to it used to be i'll give you another good example in 1968 i was 11 years old and i was i delivered the newspapers for the pittsburgh press that was my kid job and my best friend who lived across the street, his name was Jeff Keyes, he delivered the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which was the morning paper. I delivered the afternoon paper, he delivered the morning paper. And so we made, I know this is going to sound like nothing, but remember, this is 1968. We made about $15 a week, which in those days for a kid was big money. Remember, the minimum wage in, that, in those days was $2 an hour. Right. Okay, so for a kid, $15 was a lot of money. You could buy, for example, just to give you an example, you could go to the movies for a double feature for 50 cents on a Saturday afternoon. That was what that, it, it, and they would show cartoons and all kinds of cool shit. They had, it was called the, 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 mat, the weekend matinee. And you'd go, and it'd be all kids and we'd watch all these, and 50 cents. And a, a, my favorite movie candy was Dots. It was 25 cents a box. Today it's like $6, okay? Um, popcorn was 25 cents. You know what popcorn in a movie theater cost. That's all inflation. So back then we had, so we had, by kid standards, we were rich. So what did we do? Well, we lived in a suburb of Pittsburgh called Mount Lebanon. And we wanted to go downtown because we were both in those days, we just loved hanging out. 
you know, going down and eating street food and all that kinds of good shit. And all that was downtown Pittsburgh. So we had to ride the streetcar, which is light rail. So he and I would walk from our house in Mount Lebanon. It was about a mile and a half by ourselves. We're 11 years old, just two little boys. Would walk to Dormont, which was the next township where the streetcar started. We'd jump on a streetcar by ourselves, ride it through the tunnels into downtown Pittsburgh by ourselves, get off, spend the whole day. And remember, Pittsburgh is a racially and ethnically very mixed city. If you've ever been there, there's everything. Every flavor of people is in downtown Pittsburgh. But no one ever bothered kids. No one even thought they'd bother kids. You know, child snatching never happened. School and shooting was never in the same sentence. The first school shooting was Columbine, okay? But back then, there was no such thing. And all we had to call our parents with was a dime. We didn't have a cell phone. We had a dime. You'd go to a pay phone. I know no one knows how to use them anymore. And you'd call your, if you're going to be late. And we had to be home at dark. And if we were going to be home after dark, we, no one was worried. We'd call, hey, mom, we, we, got, we lost track of time. We'll be home about 7 o'clock. Okay? That was it. End of story. <laughs> Nice. Because nobody hurt children. That was the world we lived in. Okay, it wasn't a perfect world. It, so the idea behind the 1964 plan is to keep all the social progress and fix all the things we fucked up. That's the, mm. And 1964, because that was the year of the Civil Rights Act, and that's the most important law of all to keep. We keep that law, we look at everything else, we fix all the shit we've done, and we try to restore our country. And the reason we're doing this as a non-political movement is because politicians... The objection to all of this is going to be, by anybody who's reasonable, is this this will never happen. And I would tell you that today that's true. Mm-hmm. But the radical, because this is a radical program, but the radical becomes reasonable when the shit hits the fan. And my background, besides everything I've already shared, is I have a long financial background. That was my background, was in finance. Long, long, long. And I'm not going to, this is not a brag, I just know what I'm talking about. And I'm sharing with you something that I'm not alone in saying. We are about to experience the greatest economic collapse in the history of basically the modern of modern civilization. We're going to have a depression so bad it's going to make the Great Depression look like a like a party. Okay. And it's here. It it could happen to today, it could happen next year, but it won't we won't get to the 2024 elections without it happening. We're going to have a crash soon. One morning you're going to wake up and you're going to find out the world financial markets, all of them, not just America, the whole world is going to implode as a result of lots of things that I'm not going to bore you with here because we'd have to go on for another three hours. But (laughs) when that happens, people will start looking for alternatives. Now, here's why it's important to get involved, I hope, with the 1964 plan, those those people watching and listening. People are going to be looking for an alternative. And the demagogues, the the dangerous people are going to come out of the woodwork. This is how you get a Hitler. And I'm not being dramatic. When, when the world turns to shit, people start looking for a solution, and they feel panicked, and suddenly they'll accept things that they normally wouldn't accept. And that's how you end up with a guy like Donald Trump on steroids, okay? Trump is just the beginning. If you think he's the worst that could happen, you're living in a dream world, okay? Right. In a lot of ways, he wasn't all that bad. We could get something, oh, so much worse, not just a big braggart narcissist asshole, but a big braggart narcissist asshole who wants to ruin all of our lives. And believe me, that's what happens when the world turns to shit. So we have to have a positive vision as an alternative. Politicians will do what the people tell them to do. So my goal is to create a movement that will pick up momentum, especially when the world turns to shit, and we can force 
the plan onto the politicians because they'll never come to it themselves. And, <laughs> and it'll be a good, the disaster is a golden opportunity to fix what's broken and to put put the horse put put the Humpty Dumpty back together again, but without the bad parts, without the racism, without with, without the Jim Crow, without all that bullshit. Put it together right, and we have a chance, and it's coming, and that's what the 1964 plan is about. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you, man, I definitely see a lot of good things within your plan. And this is this is why I wanted to talk to you, because I looked at your nonprofit and I was like, this is very, very, very fucking interesting. I had to get the guy on the show. So I want to thank, thank you so much. Oh, I want to thank you. I want to say one more thing for everybody yeah. that I'm watching, because I, obviously I'd like them to donate and get involved. Um, I am not an officer of the 1964 plan, nor do I sit on the board. I did that on purpose. So when we created the nonprofit, because of my own background as a felon and, and the nature of my crimes, I don't want anyone to have any doubt in their mind that I'm doing this for money. So I'm mm -hmm. not an officer. I'm not a board member. I don't have I have no idea where we bank, to be perfectly honest. I, I don't write the checks. I'm not involved. Awesome. I don't take a salary. All yeah. we use the money. For, all we use the money for is sending me out to give to speak and and. I'm a, I mean, this is going to be braggy, but you guys, I'm a really good public speaker. I mean, I, I don't mean this to be braggy, but I'm very comfortable <laughs> with it. And the idea is, is to roll out. Well, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of my superpower. Only I used it for evil before I raised money mm. using my charisma for evil. Now I want to use my superpower for good. So the idea is, is to, so that I can come out and speak to, to universities and, and, and community groups and churches and schools and whoever will have me, okay? I don't care if it's five people in the living room to go out and share the plan because when the shit hits the fan, there's gotta be an alternative. And the other nice thing about me personally is I have no political ambition at all. The yeah. last thing on earth yeah. I wanna do is be in politics. I, I can't imagine a more h horrible way to spend my day. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I have four children, they're all adults. I have grandchildren, I have a life like everybody else. I. It's not that I, I don't have such a great hunger for power that I want to give up all the other good things in my life. So don't worry. I'm not trying to be anything. All I want to do <laughs> is leave the country. I'm 66. I'll, the statistic is if you live to be 40, this is, you know, they always say the average age in America is 78. Well, if you live to be 40 and you're not dead, then it becomes 88 because mm -hmm. the number one cause of death before 40 is accidents. But over 40, that goes away. So all those crazy things that young people do to kill themselves older people don't do. So if you live to be 40, right. you're probably going to live to be in your mid 80s. So but in the next 20 years that's left of my life, give or take, I'd like to leave the world a little better than I found it for my children, my grandchildren and everybody in the country. Mm. And I know that's grandiose, but you know, I have a certain set of talents that kind of lends itself to it. And if I can do it, great. And if I can't, well, I tried. And better to have tried and failed than, than to never have tried at all. I really appreciate that. That's, that's, that's a great way to end this because it um it definitely sets the tone and i love i love the fact that you want to leave the world a better place i wish a lot of people thought that way <laughs> thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you so everybody <laughs> go to the 1964plan.org check it out for yourself you can reach out to me through the website it's easy to reach out to me and uh yeah all that other kind of good stuff i don't we're on social. We just started playing with social media. We have somebody doing it. I'm going to tell you a little secret. I'm not the one that's really doing it. So posting on our social media isn't going to really get to me. Just mm. feel free. H-K-A-Y, H-K-A-Y at the 1964plan.org. You can email me directly. It's my pleasure. My last name is K, K-A-Y. So H-K-A-Y at the 1964plan.org. If you have something you'd like to know or ask me something straight up, don't hesitate. I'll be happy to answer it. 
Thank you so I'll much. I'll get to it, I promise. <laughs> My pleasure. And I hope you My have pleasure. a really good day. And for everyone that's watching, don't forget to like, share, and follow. And thank you so much for listening in on the Jabari Vok podcast. This is actually the last episode for season four. Season five is going to be starting really, really soon. So thank you so much for coming out, Mr. K, Herbie K. And I hope you have a really good day. Jamar, it's been a huge pleasure. It's one of the best shows I've done. I've really enjoyed it and love to everyone. Have a great okay. day, you guys. Have a good day. Peace out. Black period, yeah. I'm a black, brown, and indigenous. Gotta holla if you really feeling this. Gotta holla if you really real enough. Other rappers is delirious. Yeah, it's really that serious. Better holla if you really feeling me. I gotta keep it a hundred. If you don't like it, then fuck it. Ay. We gonna win in the end. Yeah, we gonna live in abundance. I gotta keep it a hundred. If you don't like it, then fuck it. Ay. We gonna win in the end. Yeah, we gonna, we gonna, we gonna. I gotta keep it a hundred. We gotta stop all the stunting. You know we coming from nothing. Yo, you talking about money, you bluffing. We gotta do something different. We gotta change how we living. We gotta do better for women. We gotta do better for children. We gotta listen to victims, whether Jewish or Muslim or Christian. It doesn't matter your religion. You gotta stand against the system, or else you're just another villain. How you just sitting there chilling?